Welcome to the Reported Missing podcast, where we investigate why Canadians go missing, how it affects society, and what is being done to prevent and respond to the issue. Hi, listener, I'm Becca, a Canadian journalist, missing persons advocate, and your host for this podcast. Today, I am bringing you the story of Marshall Awasa. It's a story that has sparked outrage among Canadians because of the way it has been handled by police. More specifically, though, that it hasn't been treated as criminal in nature. On one hand, the family argues the circumstances of Marshall's case are so out of character for him that there's no way he voluntarily disappeared. On the other hand, though, police argue there's just not enough evidence to suggest foul play or that the case is criminal in nature. So what does it mean for a case to be treated as criminal? It would mean a more specialized team will take over the investigation, the homicide team, and it would mean that collected evidence could be sent for DNA testing. It has been almost 10 months since Marshall disappeared and the case remains unsolved, so a fresh set of eyes could really help in the advancement of the case. If you are not familiar with Marshall's disappearance, I will give you a summary and you will hear about it from Marshall's sister, Paige. But the main focus of this episode will be on Marshall's risk assessment conducted by police, something Marshall's family hasn't spoken publicly about until now. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, every week I talk about a new missing person topic. This week, the topic of discussion is risk assessment, specifically in the context of Marshall's case. If you don't know what risk assessment is, don't worry, I will make sure you do. I will be referencing the Handbook of Missing Persons, edited by Stephen Morwitz and Caroline Sturdy Calls, so I need to give credit where credit is due. I've been reading this volume for a while now, and it has really helped me in my understanding of missing person topics. So in this volume, scientific experts from around the world contributed and offered insight on best practices, new methods that may be employed in missing person investigations, among other things. Let me give you an overview before jumping into the story. In the early stages of a missing person investigation, police must conduct a risk assessment. According to Shauna Foy's contribution to the Handbook of Missing Persons, a risk assessment is based on information provided by the person filing the missing person report, as well as the information that police find out about the person on their own. Risk assessment will determine two key things about an investigation. Number one, the speed and scale of the initial police response. And number two, what likely happened to the missing person. The most important takeaway is that the initial and ongoing risk assessment will have a significant impact on the success of the investigation. If you are not familiar with Marshall Awasa, he's 26 years old. He was last seen by his mom in Lethbridge, Alberta, on November 17, 2019. He lived two hours away in Calgary, Alberta, but was in Lethbridge visiting his mom. He also needed to get a computer box from his storage locker, a locker he shared with his sister Paige. Five days after Marshall was last seen by his mom, his truck was found burnt down in the backcountry of Pemberton, B.C., which is roughly 13 hours away from Lethbridge. The truck was found by a group of hikers who felt uneasy about the situation, so they took photos and reported it to police. 
Then police notified Marshall's family. The same day they were notified, they reported him missing. And during the reporting, they told police the situation was out of character for him. Let's talk about some of the reasons why Marshall's family believes the circumstances of his disappearance were out of character. So reason number one is he had no ties to British Columbia, let alone Pemberton. Reason number two, getting to the truck site is extremely challenging, even with 4x4 all-terrain vehicles. The family actually visited the truck site guided by a search crew and got lost on the way there. What was supposed to be a 13-hour drive from Lethbridge turned into a 20-some-hour drive for them. Reason number four. Marshall finished paying for his truck in September, so why would he burn it down two months later? Reason number five. There were some items found at the truck site that were not Marshall's. Reason number six. He was close with his family, especially with his sister Paige. He was under my care since he was 16. He came to live with myself, my boyfriend, and uh, my cousin and her fiancé at the time. And we actually helped try and raise him when he was a teenager. So I would say I know him fairly well. We're the only two siblings and we're very close. In the handbook of missing persons I referenced earlier, and will reference more throughout this episode, Foy states that people who know the missing person well and are close with them are in the best position to say what the likely motives or goals of this person was, as well as the possible risks, to some extent, that the missing person may be exposed to. Now, some people may say that there's always a possibility an individual was living a double life or had underlying mental health issues that nobody knew of. And while that is the case sometimes, it would be highly inappropriate for you or me or anyone other than a medical professional to make such a conclusion. And not only is Paige his sister, but she is also a mental health professional. So I have my master's in social work. I have my I have my bachelor's and my master's in social work. I am a licensed clinical social worker in both the state of Hawaii and Alberta. In the States, I've completed my master's, completed two years at least of supervised training, and had to sit for a clinical exam in order to get my clinical license. It's the same regulations here, very similar regulations here in Alberta. But since I already had my clinical license from the States, I was able to then transfer it over because it's the, it, the equivalency is met. In the States, it's basically, other than a PhD, pretty high up in my field, I'm able to diagnose and bill to like different healthcare providers. Paige told me that based on conversations she had with police, it seemed they were leaning more towards the idea that Marshall became stressed, withdrawn, and voluntarily disappeared or committed suicide. The officers had talked to both myself and my mom and said, oh, you know, he might have gone up there to do self-harm. That's something that we're thinking. And then maybe he changed his mind and didn't want to die. And then it was so cold. Maybe he started burrowing. Do you know what burrowing is? It's when people get hypothermia and they start taking off their clothes and crawling around on the ground and going into a hole to die. I'm not desensitized to those types of talks. Like they still affect me, but I read reports on people who have died and I, I oversee assessments and I read about this type of stuff and, I, and I've worked in the field doing these types of assessments and having to have those difficult conversations with people. But I think someone that isn't as familiar with this realm of death and behavioral health diagnoses and suicide, 
that's pretty scary stuff to hear and to talk about. Um, and I know for my mom, that was really difficult for her to hear and to talk about. And the amount of like information that they would have had to make that theory, I don't think it was enough to be able to say that to someone's family. By someone thinking very strongly that this is what's happening, you're looking for things to to be indicators of that. So I know at one point, the officer had asked me, oh, is your brother really into Lord of the Rings? And I said, no, like, not really. Why? Oh, well, we found out that all the mountains around there are are named after Lord of the Rings characters. So that might have been really significant to him. And my belief of why he was bringing that up was to give reason for why my brother might have been there to either go hiking by himself or commit suicide by himself. Um, I've also brought it up that it would not make sense. Typically people do not drive 14 hours to kill themselves in an area that they're unfamiliar with. Um, Like typically it's a date or a method or a location that is significant to a person that they feel safe and comfortable in. Typically for men, it's a little bit more um, impulsive. Higher lethality choices are made for um, suicide attempts. Um, they're a little bit different than women's attempts. And, you know, some of the times it's more impulsive. So driving 14 hours to a place that you're not familiar with in the middle of nowhere is not any of those. Um, and so, and the other thing too is, you know, yes, people, and this is something I've brought up before. It's like, yeah, people might get depressed, but that does not mean they're committing suicide. There's people get depressed all the time. Um, there are changes in people's lives that are difficult to deal with. Some people go on medication for depression. Some people just do therapy. Some people do a combination of both. Some people do nothing and they just kind of get over it sometimes. Um, everyone is different, but having depression does not mean you are going to kill yourself. And I think that's, that's, something that maybe isn't well understood. It maybe they feed so much into each other in that person's eyes or that person's understanding of behavioral health that those things go hand in hand all the time and they do not. On June 15th, Lethbridge police were getting some heat from the public regarding Marshall's case and why it hadn't been classified criminal in nature. So they took to Facebook to explain their decision making. This is exactly what they said. In examining Iwas's personal affairs in the months leading up to his disappearance, including interviews with close friends as well as his financial, medical, and social media activity, there is evidence to suggest he was experiencing stress in his life and had become withdrawn. You know, Marshall has always kind of had that very nonchalant whether he, like, keeps in contact, keeps his phone on, responds to messages. He's not on social media. So he kind of is like more recluse that way, just generally, even before getting into school. It's not out of the realm of possibilities for anyone in the world to commit suicide. Um, But I don't believe that Marshall did. And I don't believe that it would make sense given what we have found and what has been missing. Another reason why I don't think my brother committed suicide was because some of the ideas that the Lethbridge police had used in their determination of feeling that it was a suicide, like not telling us that he wasn't in school and dropping out of school, withdrawing from friends. The other thing that they said was he had refilled his prescription, which was a regular medication that he had been taking for a while and feeling like those are all factors showing that he might have been depressed or suicidal. I definitely feel Marshall could have been stressed out. He definitely could have been stressed and depressed in school. Um, 
I don't, however, think that means he committed suicide. I think for certain he could have had things going on. But just given knowing Marshall and who he is, I don't believe that he committed suicide. So the whole reason why this case is not being treated as criminal is because police say there is no evidence to suggest foul play or a crime took place. But there is evidence to suggest he most likely committed suicide or voluntarily disappeared. I don't know about you, but this didn't really add up for me. So I started asking Paige more questions about other assumptions or theories police told her and her family. The biggest and most frustrating one that was thrown out without having a real understanding of it is schizophrenia. I think the criteria to me for someone to be diagnosed as schizophrenia is pretty high. I think another thing is like my background. I came from a position working with SMI populations. And so that's that was one of the primary diagnoses in the program I worked in. So it was kind of interesting to have the officer tell me that he thought, well, maybe your brother had schizophrenia. And I had just seen my brother in August and I had said, no, you know, I saw him when we were camping. We spent a solid two weeks with him. You know, there was no indicators of psychosis. And the officer then came and told me, well, maybe he was hiding them from you. And I don't believe this officer knows my background. Um, So, no, uh, I mean, I kind of can get it. Maybe if you see those kinds of things on TV, but no, my brother did not have schizophrenia. I'm pretty certain of that. And he, it would have been extremely difficult to hide those types of symptoms from me. Um, you know, people, if they have pretty strong internal stimuli, whether that's voices or delusions, auditory, visual, whatever it is, they're hard to hide, especially for a long period of time with someone. And, and I know my brother. We're pretty close, so I would have noticed some changes in him had he been responding to that type of internal stimuli. And, you know, specifically when the officer tried to tell me it was schizophrenia, had I not been trained, I might have been like, oh, maybe he did. Maybe he did have schizophrenia. I don't know what, you know, what exactly that means. And then I could have just, that could have totally taken this case a different way. Had I not known at least a decent amount of suicide intervention training, um, I would have been like, yeah, yeah, maybe he did, you know, get his prescription as a way to commit suicide. And maybe this is what happened to my brother. But I know that his prescription is not one that's commonly overdosed on. I know that it's very controlled here, especially in Canada. Um, and that you can only get a certain amount, you can only get about one month at a time. Um, and you can't get like a three month bulk prescription of it. So I, I know a decent amount about that. Um, and just general indicators of suicide. Did the officer tell you how he came to the conclusion that Marshall had schizophrenia? So I had actually brought it up the last time, like the time after it caught me so off guard when he had said that and I had like kind of come up like, no, that's not what it is. And then he rebuttaled saying like, well, maybe he was hiding that from you. Like, I just kind of like left it. And at our next conversation, which I think was like a couple of days later, I had asked like, hey, like, where did you get that idea that he had schizophrenia? I, was, I asked, did you get a clinical consult? And he said, no, I didn't get a clinical consult. But I also never told you I thought it was schizophrenia. There is very different criteria for different clinical diagnoses. And I specifically brought up the ones for schizophrenia, not because he had thrown out something else like um, bipolar. Um, So I was a little bit frustrated when he tried to just back out of it and say he never told me it was schizophrenia. And I, I was also equally as frustrated when I found out there was no clinical consult because the other theory that they were pushing was suicide. And to 
be someone to push that on another person when they have a missing loved one, I think is completely inappropriate if you haven't at least had some clinical training or a clinical consult with someone on your team. Have they had a clinical consult to date? Not to my knowledge. Do you think they should have one? Yes. I think anyone that is missing when they're thinking that this might be suicide, I think they need to talk to a professional and not just go on what their gut is telling them because that's highly inappropriate. And, you know, I, as someone who's trained, I can't, before with my master's in Hawaii, I could not just go tell someone what they, what I thought they had. That's unethical. If someone's going to get diagnosed, the person that's diagnosing them has been through training. They're not just someone willy nilly throwing out behavioral health diagnoses or suicide um, as like what they think because they feel that way. To tell someone that their loved one has like a mental health diagnosis or that you're really confident that it was suicide, it, I would expect that you would have a clinical consult or know what you're talking about. We're talking about Lethbridge police that said this, right? Yes. It's September 4th and I'm literally trying to get a hold of them, been trying to get a hold of them for two weeks now. All my calls have gone to voicemail and my email hasn't been answered. We're not getting anywhere now, but I will keep trying. Something I found interesting while reading voice paper in the Handbook of Missing Persons is when she said that usually improper handling of a missing person report happens because the missing person was deemed a runaway or as someone who chose to disappear when there wasn't strong evidence to suggest it. She says it only becomes clear that the initial report required a more urgent response when the person is found diseased or injured due to foul play. So this should never happen. The initial and ongoing risk assessment should be thorough enough at the beginning that the likelihood of finding them is high and that the case doesn't end up being a cold case. I tried to find evidence-based research on what the standard is for the risk assessment process in Canada, its effectiveness, etc., but there is little to no research on this topic, and that is shocking considering it plays a huge role in the scope and outcome of an investigation. As experts suggest, you'd think there would be some research to assess the effectiveness of the current process in Canada, but there really isn't. In case you missed last week's episode, I interviewed Heidi Illingworth, Canada's federal ombudsman for victims of crime. In the submission she made to the Independent Civilian Review into Missing Persons Investigations, Heidi talks about bias in policing. She says investigators who are unaware of their biases or who do not make efforts to control them have the potential to compromise investigations through a lack of objectivity, leading to faulty decision-making. Heidi even gives an example and references the issue in the MacArthur case, where police made the assumption that adult men cannot be victims of a predator or serial killer. If you aren't familiar with him, Bruce MacArthur dismembered eight men between 2010 and 2017. 
the Independent Civilian Review into Missing Persons Investigations is meant to look at how the Toronto Police Service conducts their investigations. And it was only initiated because members of the LGBTQ community were concerned over how police handled their disappearances and the disappearances of other marginalized people following the Bruce MacArthur murders. Bruce MacArthur specifically targeted men who were members of the LGBTQ community. The question of whether or not police were accurately assessing the risk of missing persons was brought up, and that's what prompted the independent civilian review. In her submission, Heidi also referenced research conducted by Dr. Shalev Green that showed in the case of adults who do not appear to be vulnerable, police tend to rule out foul play very quickly without a thorough assessment of risk and vulnerability. As a result of these and other findings, Heidi made a list of recommendations to all police services across Canada regarding missing person investigations. One of them was, and I quote, to provide a standardized investigative framework based on evidence for all missing person investigations and to ensure that investigators follow identical steps, including assessing the risk and vulnerability of each person reported missing. She is not the only one who has made recommendations regarding the risk assessment process. In fact, Laura Hui, who is the director of the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing, also made a submission to the Independent Civilian Review into Missing Persons Investigations. Hui evaluated a handful of studies to determine what challenges exist within the risk assessment process in Canada. She found that, as other experts have pointed out, Faulty risk assessments can negatively impact an investigation. One study she evaluated found that most missing person records did not contain useful risk assessment information and that the process is used differently across Canada. She made recommendations similar to Heidi, that there be a standardized risk assessment process and that it needs to be clear who is making the risk assessment, among other recommendations. In one particular study she evaluated, the majority of cases had foul play ruled out and most people who were missing were classified as an accident, then suicide. So what type of standard do police follow when it comes to assessing the risk and vulnerability of a missing person? Again, the transparency around this topic is so unclear that I couldn't tell you for certain. What I can say, though, is that there is no national framework in Canada, so it's likely very jurisdictional and it's largely based on the judgment of the officer. Now, the subjective judgment of the officer regarding what has happened to a missing person is critical, and it's highlighted in Foy's contribution to the Handbook of Missing Persons. But she also highlights that the judgment needs to be based on quantitative data and clinical judgment. It can't entirely rely on the officer's own judgment because this will allow room for bias. When I look back on it now, um, I had always brought up that one of my concerns was tunnel vision and that continues to be a concern. I feel that there's a lot of other things that need to be looked into, but a lot of the theories that had been brought up or ideas had all kind of revolved around Marshall either driving up there himself to go hiking or do some activity and then maybe an accidental fire in his truck or had gone out to commit suicide and then changed his mind and then had died from the elements or had just gone out there to commit suicide. I have yet to hear what their other theories are and so I still am concerned about tunnel vision and those being the main theories. 
And again, it, I always come back to this. Had it been a voluntary dis or voluntary disappearance on the on the mountain, or had he succumbed to the elements on the mountain, or had he committed suicide on the mountain where his truck was found burned, they would have then found his body in the June twenty um, eighth search or the end of the June end of June search that happened. And so when we got our reports back from the search and rescue and our team that went up there, they're very confident that had there been a body up there, the dogs would have found it. Our search teams that were hired by our private investigators or that were brought into it by our private investigators, they're very well trained. And they were on that mountain for, I think it was almost a week with, I believe, eight to 10 dog teams that are trained to find bodies. And they never found a body up there. So in my opinion, then it's okay, let's, you know, Lethbridge police needs to go ahead and reassess what their theories are and what their ideas are about my brother's disappearance. Because to this point, we have no body and there's no evidence that he was ever on that mountain other than his truck being there, which it could have been stolen. It could have been jacked from him. There are so many reasons why his truck could be there without him. And so given that there's nothing, my brother has not been found on that mountain, that um, I believe that we need to reassess and start looking back at Lethbridge, looking at the last place he was, which was our storage unit, you know, fingerprinting that, fingerprinting all of our items, um, looking around that area for surveillance or footage or really anything at this point. Okay, just jumping in here really quick and letting you know that you are going to hear a difference in volume between pages answers because I interviewed her on separate occasions. I think looking back on it, I can definitely see areas where there was room for additional steps to be taken. So one of the ones that I can think about is the our storage unit that my brother was last seen at. Um, Pemberton had tasked Lethbridge police to go to the storage unit. It was either Pemberton or Calgary had tasked Lethbridge police to go to the storage unit to check it out to see if there's any footage. And the police officer that went, they went and checked it out. Our storage unit was also like looked into and they looked through with a couple people and officers present. But at this point now we know that it wasn't fingerprinted to see if it had anyone else been there. The footage, it sounds like it was just asked if there was, if there was video footage and they had said it was written over and that was kind of like the end of it. It wasn't taken to a higher level in IT to see if there's a way that we can recover some of that footage. Additionally, to my knowledge, places around the storage unit had not been checked to see if they had footage. And I do know that a little bit after that, my cousin had gone around to all those places, the businesses, and um, it turns out that one of them had footage of a camera that was pointed directly in the into our storage facility area. And it had just been written over like the day before my cousin got there. Um, so certainly there was room for Lethbridge police to have asked businesses around to provide those footage that they didn't get from our storage unit um, but that wasn't done and for me that indicates something that's not being taken super seriously like they're just checking things off a box of oh well I went here and I looked for this and it wasn't there um, and kind of stopped there. I noticed that in countries like Scotland where they have a national missing persons framework risk assessment is categorized into low medium or high risk. This is how they determine what resources to allocate to each case and how quickly they respond. They ask 21 questions to determine the risk of a missing person. I will be posting them along with other information on my Instagram account at reportedmissingpod so make sure to follow me. But one thing that stuck out to me were questions 15 to 21. 
on past behavior. It says behavior that is out of character is often a strong indicator of risk. Some of the questions that were asked were, is there a reason for the person to go missing? What was the in-person intending to do when last seen? Did they fail to complete their intentions? I can't speak to the effectiveness of Scotland's risk assessment, but they have a national missing persons framework. They recognize missing persons as a social issue and are much more advanced in Canada in the way they handle missing person cases. You know, some people may say that police did everything right to come to the conclusion that they have and that they followed every step thoroughly and appropriately. You think that because police are there to protect our safety. We should trust them to do their job and serve the public. Well, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Not every single law, policy, or practice ever created by the government or government-funded agencies are going to be effective. Sometimes, a lot of the times, there are systemic flaws that, for example, would make it difficult for police to protect us. There are times where we, as members of the public, We'll have to identify those flaws. And as Paige Best puts it, policies are made by people. People and they're changed by people. And so that's why we're pushing so hard. Paige and her family felt that they exhausted their options and they needed to advance the case in some way. So they started a petition asking police, among other things, to turn the case over to criminal. We're at nine months in and we started a petition to make this case be criminal. Like... How much more backed into a corner do you get when you're just like, okay, I'm going to do a petition to try and make this case criminal? Like, what kind of world am I in? It's so crazy. I never thought I'd be here nine months in starting a petition to make this case criminal. Like, that's not what anyone wants the case to be is to be criminal. But that's where we're at at this point, given the information we have and the information that's missing. I think for me, one of the things that I hope for is more collaboration, more working together and more communication. Um, I think that's something that I would like to see improved. Um, I don't know if that will happen. And you know, I think for us as a family, if we knew certain things were being looked into and certain actions were being taken, and we had that trust and relationship with the police, we wouldn't push so hard to have them done. Um, And that could simply be solved even by the police saying like, hey, we can't tell you the specifics, but like here are some of the things that we're looking into or we're doing for your brother's case to keep it moving forward. I think what's not good for a relationship is when we find out that the detective and his supervisor responsible for the case are both on vacation leave or vacation time for a month almost or more. And we find out only by going and emailing them and we get their out of office response. Like I think... Things like that are damaging to a relationship and damaging to building trust. I mean, for me, when I got that message, it made me wonder, well, who's watching over my brother's case? If I wasn't even aware that the detective was on vacation for the month, you know, who is the person that is covering and is there a person that's even covering and following up on my brother's case? Because that was never made aware to me. And so I think that's pretty damaging for our trust that the police are actually doing things and are actually following through Um, and are really looking into my brother's disappearance. The private investigators, they're open and transparent with us 100% of the time. We are the ones that pay them, we hired them to do this work, and they're invested in Marshall's case, and they really do want to help us find answers. The police, on the other hand, they're not, you know, they are a public service, um, so they are, you know, funded by taxpayers, but they don't have that obligation to 
talk to us and communicate with us and provide us information and provide us transparent information. Um, so I think, you know, for us, we get a lot more information and insight with the private investigators. The private investigators are treating this as a criminal case. They're looking for, they're following up on leads that are not just Marshall committing suicide or Marshall choosing to go up there on that mountain. They are looking into things that might have happened to him. Um, and I do wish the police would take on that lens as well, or at least consider it more fully. Lots of other things that the police could be looking into that might push this into criminal. I mean, even getting that fire investigation report back, that still has not been completed to my knowledge or provided to us or or given a solid answer to us that it's been done and they've reviewed the findings. We have the um, findings from the fire investigator that was hired to go up to the side of the truck to determine the outcome of the fire. Um, and they actually found items at the scene that had not been collected by the police. So, I mean, all of those things together make me feel that, you know, we're paying for a specific level of service from our private investigators and we are getting that. And it's unfortunate that we have to pay for this service from them to get this level of service as well as more feeling that things are being looked at thoroughly and th all aspects and considerations are being made in Marshall's case as to what might have happened. But, I mean... It's nothing personal with the police when we put out stuff like this. It's never anything personal with the detective. It's not any one person's fault. I think it's a systematic thing. I think it's it's set up the way it is to be difficult sometimes. And I and I for as much frustrations as I have, I can't see this case being easy on any of the detectives that have it. Like, you know you haven't found this missing person, you have his family harping on, on trying to get this thing changed to criminal and you're like I, I would want to too but I can't these are you know like the police have always said like it hasn't met this criteria that's there yeah that might be the restrictions that you have but that doesn't mean I have to abide by them at this point um, and we're going to do the things that we as a family need to do to try and have this case addressed the way you know the only ways that are left because right now if it's just a missing persons case and we're just sitting here waiting for a clue to happen it's it's been nine months and we haven't found anything significantly new I have tried to reach out to Lethbridge Police for comment, but um, none of my calls have been answered and my email hasn't been replied to. So I will keep trying to get comment from police because I do think that their voice is important in this case. And if they want to comment, I want to give them the opportunity to do that. If I am able to get that, um, I will definitely update you guys. Meanwhile, if you believe that Marshall's risk assessment could have been compromised due to police bias, tunnel vision, lack of clinical studies, and considering the very, according to Paige, insensitive questions police asked her and her mom regarding what could have happened to Marshall, questions geared towards supporting the theory that he committed suicide, then I encourage you to reach out to the family and let them know because there may need to be additional steps taken beyond just a petition to get Marshall's case changed to a criminal. Perhaps there needs to be a review of Marshall's risk assessment by additional personnel because if they can prove the assessment was faulty, then this could be the break the family needs. If you want to learn more about Marshall's disappearance, please visit my advocacy website, missingpersonscanada.ca. I've written a very detailed story about Marshall, the investigation and search, and where the case is at right now. The family encourages you to join their Facebook group, Find Marshall Iwasa, where the most up-to-date information is shared. 
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and check out our previous three episodes for a better understanding on what you can expect as well as who I am and what my background is. All the advocacy work I do is completely voluntary, so your support means a lot. And following us on Instagram at reportedmissingpod as well as leaving a five-star review will really help. I'll be teasing next week's episode on Instagram later this week, so stay tuned for that. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time.